calling all lovers of mystery and fans of a good story. If you haven't already heard me talk about June's journey, you're in for a treat. It's time to don your detective hat in this free hidden object mobile game that delves into the captivating journey of June Parker, a self-proclaimed detective on a quest to unravel the mystery surrounding her sister's untimely death. In June's journey, you get to play as June, deciphering clues and unveiling secret plots within thousands of beautifully illustrated scenes. And did I mention it's set in the glitzy 1920s? New chapters are added weekly, so you will never run out of new thrills to uncover. And you can also personalize and decorate your very own Orchid Island where the story takes place. How sharp are your detective skills? Find out when you download June's Journey on your Android or iOS device, or play online via Facebook games. Your detective journey awaits. Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Buntwine, erstwhile monk-turned-traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world, that ours is not a loving God, and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Buntwine, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available. from the Downtown Writers Jam, Volume 3, Jam and Juice, which is taking place on Wednesday, February 25th. From 7 to 8.15 at Indie Read Books, we will have six authors doing their thing at the jam. That is free. You can find out about that at thegeekypress.com backslash events. What is interesting and new is that from 8.30 till 11 o'clock at the Indie Fringe Theater, right across the street, Right after the jam, we're going to have a fundraiser for Indie Reads, which battles adult literacy in Indiana. We're going to have authors doing readings. It's a one-room pub crawl, so we're going to have breweries there. We've had lots of authors and organizations donate things for a silent auction, things like the Indiana Writers Center, um, restaurants like that, the Millers. We've had authors and small publishers put together baskets of books that you can bid on. All the money that we raise will be going to Indie Read. So we would love for you to buy a ticket. It's $15, all of that money, plus what we raise with the silent auction. We go to Indie Reads. With your $15, you get two free drinks. This is being put on by the Indie Literary Pub Crawl. We are helping them out. We are partnering with them. Once a year, they do their big pub crawl, which happens, um, I think last year it happened on Fountain Square. You go and you pay and you go from bar to bar drinking beer and having readings at each place. Our sponsors are About Books and the Indiana Writer Center, along with our friends at Indie Reads and Indie Fringe. So you should make sure you do that. You can find out, you can buy your tickets at IndieLiteraryPubCrawl.com or go to TheGeekyPress.com backslash events. You can always sign up for our newsletter, which you should absolutely do. Find out all the cool shit that we're doing. Don't send out an email all the time, but when I do, hopefully you find it interesting. You send them on to your friends. We build up our list. We make cool shit happen in the literary world. 
So I'm very happy and excited about having Salvatore Payne on today. I met him a few weeks, uh, a couple months ago, maybe. I'm 42. A few weeks and a couple months is the same goddamn thing. And he was giving a reading, and it was a, his first poem was about the New York Knicks. And so that meant we were going to be friends because we are both Knicks fans, which means we are long-suffering. We do things like hate the Chicago Bulls. We do not like Isaiah Thomas. All of that stuff. So we bonded over that. His fiance runs Vouch Books um, in Indianapolis. And she and Salvatore both, um, Sal, work on Corgi Snorkel Press, which we'll talk about a little bit in the interview. But he's just a good guy. He teaches down at the University of Indiana, uh, Indianapolis. And he is one of those guys in the scene that's just good to know. And it's, it's fun to hear his story. And I think we came to writing in the same kind of way and have that same sensibility, this working class ideal about writing um, and not not a pretense about what the ways in which you go about doing this. And so I, did, I find that there's just very few times that I get a chance to talk to somebody that had that views writing through that a similar kind of lens. Not that we're the same, but it, there's that similar kind of bonding over the ways in which um, you write literature. And, and one of our guests, Angela Jackson-Brown, who wrote Drinking from a Bitter Cup, and she competed in the second jam, her prose is amazing. And I just, like, you read it and it feels magical. And it was the same way when I read, and I know I've talked about Hannah Funder um, and Stasi Lane, but it just has that sort of lyrical quality to it. And it feels light and airy without being empty. And that's not how I write. And I don't get the sense that that's how Sal writes either. So getting into that sort of like where that stuff comes from, like what, because you can't mind it. It's just your authentic voice. Like I don't sit down and say like, I'm going to be like brutalize the language and um, sort of charge head first into the narrative. Um, any more than I would suspect Anna Thunder or Angela sits down and says like, I need this to be lyrical. Yes, that is the voice that comes from inside you. So we had a good time with that um, and, and, and went down to his house and spent some time hanging out there. So uh, we'll get to that in just a minute. Don't forget, Downtown Writers Jam, Volume 3, Wednesday, February 25th. Get to thegeekypress.com backslash events or go to indieliterarypubcrawl.com. Sign up for our newsletter. Sign up for their newsletter. Find out all the events that are happening in the literary world in Indianapolis and in the greater Indian area. In the summer, we'll be taking the jam up to Chicago. Um, don't know what the details of that are, but working with our friends at Curbside Splendor Publishing. So stay tuned for that. Our goal is to begin to take the jam into other places um, and to bring the podcast with it. So a lot of stuff going on. Really interested to hear what's going on with you guys. Always, you can drop us a note at thegeekypress.com. There's a contact page. Send us an email. Tell us what you're doing. If you've got stuff that you're working on, uh, if there's cool events you got going on, we will absolutely put those kinds of things together, share them with everybody. Our goal here is to help build the literary scene. So we are very happy to tell other people what is happening. For now, we're going to get to Sal Payne and our interview.
So the first time I met you uh, was down at Indy Reed's Books, and yes. I don't know whether you, your wife or your fiance told me or whether I just found out, but you're a Nick fan. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So I liked you immediately. So how does that happen? Are you from New York? I'm not from New York, so I'm from Scranton, uh, Pennsylvania, which is about a little under two hours from New York City. So um, we got the MSG feed when I was a kid on cable, so I was able to watch all the games. But um, I kind of became a fan in the most arbitrary, bullshit way <laughs> possible, where I decided I was going to like sports, so I got all of my cards out. I had trading cards, and I lined them all up, and I just uh, put them in piles based on the teams, and I had the most Knicks. So <laughs> that really is that, a bullshit way. It ruined my life. If only like, right. I was, like, one away from the Pacers and the Bulls, so, you know, moving to Indianapolis, right. that would have been good. The Bulls would have been great. Right. No. But, no. No. Michael Jordan, I hate him. Like, I despise him with the passion of a thousand suns. I've never worn a Nike, like, Jordan no. shoe. Like, no. I wear Byrams. Like, I don't. I was a Georgetown fan, too, yeah. so growing up. So, like, you Patrick Ewing was my, like, Patrick Ewing and John Thompson were the best. And uh, I fucking hate North Carolina. Yeah. I hate the Bulls. Oh, yeah. The um, hate runs deep. Yeah. Jordan. I will, I will wear Nike shoes, but no jump man. I won't even get the Mellows because they got this, this stupid logo on Right. It. Anything with that logo, I'm not buying. And you know that it's, it's there's a copyright lawsuit yeah, about that, that. Right? right? I'm totally hoping that yeah. they, like, I want that guy to get everything. Yeah. Everything. I want them to wipe out that line yeah. forever. I won't root for the, the Hornets yeah. because he owns the team. Right. North not, Carolina, yeah. too. Right. It's, nothing in North Carolina is a thing that I enjoy. Yeah. Um, yeah and Patrick Ewing, uh, when I was 16, um, Dikembe Mutombo, I believe, he was either a freshman or a senior, and Ewing was the other. And my dad uh, and I drove out to New York City for the Final Four when they played Duke, oh. Danny Ferry's Duke. Yeah. And Danny Ferry's Duke beat us. So, like, my whole life was built around Patrick Ewing almost winning. Yeah. Um, I mean, they won the one national championship, but, and they, but then, like, Villanova shoots 83% or some bullshit while they're all on cocaine. And then Danny Ferry's team, it's just a nightmare. And then he goes to the NBA. And three for 18. Years. Yeah, 15 years of horror, basically. Three for 18. Yeah. Games, game seven. Oh, it Stop. burnt into my brain. <laughs> right. Yeah. Um, I remember where I was. Uh, I was at a pool party. <laughs> I was mad because I didn't want to go because I want to watch game seven. Right. And I was the only kid who came out of the pool and just sat with uh, the kid's dad just in the basement in the dark. And I was just screaming at the game basically the entire right. time. As John Starks is just clanking yeah, three-pointer after, after another, another after yeah. another. And, like, I mean, if he gets, like, four – yeah, we win. Yeah. Handily. Yeah. If he's used forty five percent, we we win. Yeah. If he's used thirty five, yeah, you know, we'll probably probably do it. And he's my favorite player. I love John Starks. Yeah. Right. Bagger, right? Bagger Vance. He yeah, is, yeah, yeah. Like, yeah. he comes off the grocery line yep. to like be the blue collar, like ass kicker. Yeah. Um and now I can't even watch the Knicks. Like they're I like the last five, ten years. Like the Isaiah forward yeah. has just been it just, I can't even I can't even. You know, I, I watch them a lot. This season, I, I've kind of... So you got to see the 15-game losing streak. Oh, yeah. Yeah, so I have week pass, like an idiot. And um, <laughs> I've been following probably almost every game since they got Amari in 2010. And I kind really? of fell off during the Isaiah years, too, and the Marbury and all that kind of right. stuff. Um, and they brought me back like an idiot, and I have been following them pretty closely since then. Now, you, this season, you know, you hope they lose every game right. from here on out, so I'm kind of not watching as much right. as So you, are, you believe in Melo? Oh no! <laughs> right. No, no, okay, right. Clear, no. Okay. Uh, I like him. I, I, I think that I think they really could win with him. I think he could be Dirk. Um, in what? That, I think that 2010. Dirk plays team, defense, kind of. 
He's well, seven foot tall. I think Melo's underrated defender. I think he's okay. I don't yeah. think he's the disaster that people say. I think he's okay when he's motivated and tries. So I think that if that's what you want out of your superstar, when you're yeah. motivated well, and yeah, try. I, I'm not saying he's great, <laughs> uh, but you could win in an off weird year, like in 2010 with the Mavs, when you had all these defenders and shooters around Melo. Yeah. It happened. That was the team they had two years ago, but they were all 35. Right. You know. And I think that team could have actually been good yeah. had they been two years under. It, it looked like an old Nick team, yeah. like Anthony Mason. There's like, we're going to get a bunch of guys, 6'7 to 6'9, who just, yeah, who just beat the shit out of you. Yeah, and like, be, Kurt, they just got the 90s Knicks. So like, right. Andy and Kurt Thomas. Right. Bring them back. <laughs> right. You know, we'll get the 99 finals team. Right. So you made a horrible mistake. So you, is that where you grew up? You, you were there your whole life? In Scranton, yeah. What would your parents do? Um, so my dad uh, ran an auto body shop. Mm-hmm. Um, it was a family business. So you're a blue collar guy oh, yeah. from like yes. the Rust Brandon, Belt, like coal. Yeah, yeah. You know, my dad. You know, I grew up basically in the garage, uh-huh. know, doing stuff like that. Like uh, he never let me do anything with cars, which explains why I can't do anything now. Right. So he uh, had the skill. Yeah, he had all the skill. <laughs> um, he painted all the cars. That was the, the, so he, he detailed did. and stuff too. Yeah. So he could fix and detail. He did it from well, top he to did bottom. Mostly the paint and okay. uh, like that kind of stuff. Um, I pulled weeds and played Game Boy. You know, like that was kind of what I did. One Stay time. out of the way. He, he taught me a lot of lessons. Like one time, he uh, there was this big hill in the backyard of the garage, and, and he gave me a shovel at the start of the summer. He's like, you got to go turn that into a hole. So I did that for weeks. And then at the end, he, he asked me, he's like, can you uh, fill that up now and like level it out? Really? And that was my summer. Taught, taught, I don't know what it taught me, but at the time, I'm like, I think I just learned a lesson. Um, but in retrospect, I don't know what that lesson is. <laughs> And what'd your mom do? So she had a kind of a long string of jobs. So now she's a she is an assistant to um, the uh, the principal at a Catholic high school. Uh-huh. Um, but when I was growing up, she she worked at Sears and she she worked at like a bank, like at a credit card company. Did she, she do the house mom thing where like she'd be home for some time and then get a job? Or like my mom sort yeah. of bounced back and forth between home. And work. She she was always around, but I, she always had a job. Yeah. From probably when I was like six on. I yeah. Say. My mom sort of did the part time. My mom hated having a job, like yeah. a job out of the house. She was like a house mom. That was what she wanted to do. So every time she took it, I was always happy. I'm like, here comes the party. Like mom's not here, <laughs> right? Uh, but it was the sort of. So your dad, uh, he owned a shop. Do they still family still own the no, shop? They sold it back in when was that? Like 2011 or 12. So they had it for a long time. So they stayed. Oh, yeah. They were there for. Are they still in Scranton? Oh yeah, they're still there. Um, and you know, it, my my grandfather ran it. So you know, it was a big family kind of business for for years. What's the name of it? Sea Paint Body Shop. But okay. it's gone now. So now um, a medical group purchased it. So now there's a doctor in there. So that just seems really odd to me. And there's lofts above it. So sometimes I'll go by. It's the live workspace. Work <laughs> I feel like you, we'll get into some of this. Sounds like you creep around things a lot. I'm very creepy. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so what were you like in high school? Were you like a writer? Or did you I really liked writing like, then, but I, I was definitely a big nerd. Yeah. Um, I was a huge nerd. I was really into music, so I'd go to like pump clubs and things like that. Um, but uh, I didn't drink. I was like, I'm straight edge. I'm going to be. You were that guy. Yeah, I was definitely yeah. um, part of that. Edge. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so I go to like ska shows and punk shows. And <laughs> it was, like, really lame kind of stuff. But I was really even then really into creative writing. So I, I was like the yearbook editor and the newspaper editor and, and all this kind of dorky, dorky shit. How big is Scranton? Uh, it's the third biggest city, I think, in, in Pennsylvania. But really? But that still doesn't mean anything because, you know, Pittsburgh and Philly. Right. And, you know what? I, so I think there's seventy five thousand people there. So that's it's the third. Big. 
<laughs> for, for Pennsylvania. You know, I mean, what else would it be? It'd be Harrisburg. Right. You know, Erie. Only people from Pittsburgh or Pennsylvania would know what those other places were. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, so it wasn't a big town. So you knew, and your family had lived there for a while. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah. And so what did they think about your predilection for writing and stuff like that? Were they supportive? Or? Yeah, they really encouraged it. You know, so I'm, I'm really lucky because, yeah. you know, a lot of my friends weren't really encouraged to do something like that. And they really, really did right from the start. My dad definitely did not want me to follow in his footsteps. So that's kind of why they never kind of let me do anything with cars or anything like that. They it's, wanted me to go. That's good. Yeah. It's really, I come, my, my town is a small Appalachian town. Mm-hmm. Most of my friends didn't go to college. Oh, yeah. I wasn't even planning on going to college. Yeah. Uh, that I was, that I had written some essay and then my dad rewrote it. So my, I, I can never be president of the United States because there is some fabrication on my entrance. Um, because it, yeah, I was just going to stay in my hometown and sort of yeah. do whatever you do yeah. when you stay there. So you, uh, what was the name of the school? The high school? Yeah. Or, uh, Bishop O'Hara. So it was a Catholic school. Okay. So you That's went to a private school. school. Yeah, but it's, you know, everybody got a scholarship and pretty much everybody went for free. Right. So, you know, you tell people that and they get an idea. Yeah. But, you know, our, our history books would end with like, well, we've got to be careful of this Hitler fellow and what he might do in the future. You know, right. Just looking ahead to World War II or something. <laughs> 1938 is where the history books ended. We're working on Apple IIs. Right. Like the year 2001. Uh, you know, so. Um, yeah, so in my town we had St. Columban. There was like the Catholic school, yeah. and like so I'm assuming it was that same kind of yeah. thing. Like there was the Protestant school where, oh, yeah. yeah, like that was the public school. Yeah. <laughs> that was the, yeah. where the Protestants went. Yeah, and then uh, we had St. Columban uh, that fed in. So you graduate, and where do you go to college? Uh, Susquehanna University, which is really small. So you headed for the big town after leaving. <laughs> no, I went even to a smaller <laughs> yeah. place, yeah, which is Sealings Grove, which is basically one strip of chain restaurants. You know, in a Walmart. Yeah. Like, that's pretty much all it's there. And farmland all around it. I teach you. Yeah. Muncie. Yeah, I get it. Oh, yeah. 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 Very similar. I'm Very familiar similar with what that – it is a college town with some town folks around it. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And what do you study there? Uh, creative writing. And that, that was your undergraduate. Yeah. How was that? Did you feel like you had, like, gotten out of high school and found – Oh, yeah. I, lo- I loved college. Yeah. Uh, I broke edge, so college immediately became much more fun for me. <laughs> Um, yeah, it was, it was, it was great. Um, I studied with a lot of writers. I still really admire and read and they really encouraged me. And if I didn't go there, I don't know what would have happened to me. I probably, you know, would be in my hometown Mm -hmm. still. So it's really, I'm really grateful that I went there. Well, how did they, like, what happened? Like, what were their defining moments where you're like, oh shit, this guy? Well, you know, I probably would have never went there and I don't even know where I would have applied, but the summer before senior year in high school, my, one of my teachers, um, she encouraged me to go to this writing camp that Susquehanna ran over the summer. And uh, I went, and uh, the, Tom Bailey ran it, and he's uh, with Gary Fink. He's two writers. And I was in the fiction camp with Tom Bailey. And uh, all he did was workshop us, and he cursed in the classroom. He treated us like adults. I'm like, well, i got to go here. <laughs> right. you know, like, I, just, I figured I'll just do whatever he did uh-huh. and try and become him. And that's pretty much how I've lived my life since then. I'm like, I'll just do what he did. So if he got an MFA, I guess I'll go get an MFA. And if he, did the, if he teaches, I guess I should teach because he was the first writer I met. So I just figured, like, well, if he can do it, I will just do what he did. Yeah. Have you ever heard the song, The Susquehanna Hat Company? Oh, yeah, yeah. Too Much Joy. Yeah. Yeah, so Tim Quirk, uh, who – I, he was on my bowling team in San Francisco. Um, and he, I, he now is uh, has not listened. It used to be listen.com and something now, but he's like the editorial director. But, yeah, anyway, when you said Susquehanna, I'm like, oh, I actually yeah. know a song <laughs> that is based in that part of the world. That should be the fight song. 
Just a square and a half company. Uh, so, um, t- so what does Tom Bailey do? Like, you still talk? Is he still yeah. around? Yeah, Tom Bailey's still there, and Gary Fink's still there, and I still talk to him over email. And uh, I was just there actually not too long ago, and that's where I met my fiance at a homecoming event. So they're really good about bringing <laughs> writers back, and I was a visiting writer there. So, uh, and where did you get your MFA? Uh, the University of Pittsburgh. Okay, and how was that? Did you like it? Because you know that's the big talk, right? Are MFAs worth yeah, it? Are they not worth? I couldn't care less, but. It is a discussion that people have. It's a weird discussion because, you know, it's like, oh, should you never hear anyone say, like, is an MBA worth it? Should, right. Should you go and the answer to that is quite really no. Yeah. <laughs> or like a law degree or something yeah. like that where there's no jobs either. Right. Um, uh, it was good. I mean, it, while I was in the program, it was great. You know, I, I worked with Kathy Day, who, who you know. Oh, is that where you met her? Yeah, and I loved her. So she was my – Was uh, she a teacher? Yeah. Oh. So she was my thesis advisor. So she was my mentor. I spent all this time with her. I spent all this time with Chuck Kinder. He's like this old uh, West Virginia good old boy who uh-huh. had these like raging parties at his house. And it was great. Um, Graduate school is so different. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, it was it was amazing. And then when I graduated, they they both left, mm-hmm. and I adjuncted there for a while. And that was just a horrific experience. Yeah, because so why? Uh, you know, uh, nobody the adjunct or yeah, n- nobody knew I was there. It was kind of <laughs> like working at Walmart, and you know, you, you'd ask for really small things like oh, I need to print out. Stories my students are workshopping, and you wouldn't be able to. Or just like you know, you didn't have an office, right? Just all these little things. Just but the pay was good. <laughs> yeah, yeah, the pay was great. I had a credit card I lived off. Of right. two years. Uh, it was pretty awesome. And then I maxed it out, and uh, that was the end of my adjunct career. Basically, yeah, I maxed out that credit card. Adjuncting is pretty much the worst thing in the whole world to me. It was not great. Um, so. Uh, what did you do in the like? Did you have to produce a book, or was it a chapter? Like, what did yeah. you have to do there? Mostly we workshop stories, but at the end you had to have a book, a mm-hmm. manuscript, and that um, was Last Call in the City of Bridge, the novel I published a few years later. Mm-hmm. So the early version, I, I wrote there. Um, and actually it was Kathy who really helped me write it because I was working on this other book for years about <laughs> Scranton and about you know this multi-generational right. working class story. Where'd you get that from? Yeah, I don't know. I, yeah. I read about it one day. And yeah. I'm, I'll just steal this. I'm going to do The Godfather in an auto body shop. That's <laughs> yeah. kind of what I thought I'd do. And um, she, the point of view is from the, this 45-year-old mayor, like a young mayor, and um, Kathy took me aside and she said, well, you know, I don't want – I'm going to break this to you, but this is really bad, um, and uh, you could do a lot better. And uh, there's one character who shows up for one scene towards the end, and he's pretty good. Why don't you take him, write a new book with him, remove this setting and all the concerns yeah. of this book, put it in first person. And uh, I remember just being so upset. Afterward, I, d- I didn't say anything, but I just remember going straight to the bar, and um, as we are wont to do, yes, yeah, yeah, as as we are, Jameson or uh, Bushmill, which one did you grab? Uh, I think, well, probably at that time I was really drinking Seagrams. Okay, <laughs> like I'll have the Seagrams in seven. Uh, so only kind of drinking, <laughs> yeah, yeah, basically like a soda. Um, but that, but then I wrote Last Call from that, so yeah. that's what it became. So you know, it was the best advice I ever got was to throw away that book that I've been. It's, around. Isn't it? Re- it's interesting. Um, my, you know, our book was a nonfiction book, uh, the one that I did with my writing partner, and my favorite chapter. My favorite chapter is fifteen thousand words, and it was essentially we wrote a book about the, why people build things in virtual worlds and how communities happen. Yeah. And the mother of the main character went back to her home in Oklahoma and built a, an experience museum, like an erector set. And she had the town build it. So they designed oh, wow. it, shipped it, 
So I wrote this whole thing, like, why would a guy do this? Because his dad was a NASA astronaut, and his mom, in her spare time, decided to build a museum. Yeah. And we read the book, and we were like, ah, oh, it doesn't really fit. Oh. Right? But that was, like, my yeah. favorite. That's right. Yeah, that's how it happens all the time. So right? that 15,000 words just sort of sits in yeah. nowhere, and it's not a thing you can just publish, like, because yeah. it sort of contextually means something. But other than that, it's just, like, the Strata Center at MIT. Like, yeah. that was made by people. So that's a hard, I think, yeah, thing to go through. But everyone goes through. You know, everyone has that story. Every right. writer I talk to says that exact story. <laughs> right. Well, I had a cut. And they can tell the thing. moment, like, yeah. Oh, no. yeah, you try and try. No, it's fine. You try to talk yeah. yourself into it. Nah, fuck it. It's, this is an interesting diversion. Yeah. It's not. It's really not. Um, so you you uh, get the MFA. You are in Pittsburgh. Yeah. How do you end up here? So um, while I was adjunct and I realized that I had I had to get another job or I was going to die um, of starvation. Um, so I uh, I just went on the job market and was really lucky to get to get a job at the university. Of so you were, this was not like a you just when did you get here? Uh, Twenty twelve. So you're new. Yeah. So yeah, you're so new. This is only two and a half years in. So you're oh this is the three year on the tenure track. Yeah. So this is your big year. Yeah. You're shitting yourself. Yeah. This is the, my <laughs> mid tenure review. <laughs> Yeah. Which is upstairs, and I, I'm working on it. How do you feel about that? It's daunting. It's, it's really daunting, and it's crazy to think, you know, well, I, I could be here forever. Right. Or or, <laughs> or I will be back to uh, maxing out my credit card right. in three years. So. It, yeah, it's um, it's different in the humanities. Like, I'm in journalism, so it is a, it's a professional. Um, I have, you know, I do goofy research stuff, um, but the professional things I do count. In a way that, in the humanities, I know that my friend Matt Mullins, who teaches at with Kathy yeah. at Ball State, does lots of weird shit like flash fiction and interactive storytelling, where he, you know he gets computer um, designers to create multi-dimensional stories that you. Can, I mean, it's oh, basically wow. it's um, it's the interactive fiction from the '80s and '90s, only with sort of amazing yeah. bells and whistles. And I know for him, it is hard to get people in the English department to understand that yeah. this is a thing. Yeah. Well, luckily, I, w- I would say, so So UND is a teaching school, mm-hmm. mostly. So any of the research I do counts, which is really nice. You know, so ba- basically, like I'm doing a panel at um, Indie Comic Con mm-hmm. in a few weeks. That's counting. That's right. counting as a, as a presentation. So yeah. they, they've been really good. I think when they hired me, they were looking for someone who did a lot of weird, weird crap. Like I did, like right. I wanted someone to teach comic books and do all this weird stuff. Uh-huh. So they they're very flexible, but it is amazing when I hand into my I just handed in this thing to my department chair and like the publications. One of them is the complete history, no, the complete oral history of Monkey High School, which is a short story I wrote, oh. <laughs> which is a a fake oral history, right. a big crappy sitcom that never existed. <laughs> and I remember just seeing that what I was handing in there and thinking, what does she think of this? Right. this comes across her desk and they're all doing you know stuff about Louisa May Alcott. Right. And I'm like, here's a Monkey High School story. <laughs> right. please, please don't fire me. Right. It's um, I think that so many years ago. I gave a. I was on a panel at South by Southwest with I think Corey Doctorow, who's now you know I knew him uh, from my Wire days, and um, oh shit, what's her name? She used to have a famous blog at Gawker, and now she works at Swampland. Oh, I can't remember. Anna Marie Cox, Anna Marie Cox, and Corey Doctorow and I, and the panel was called I think Working in the Cultural Gutter. Because we worked on the web and we did yeah. like weird entertainment thing, and we were sort of saying this was ten years ago, saying 
nobody respects what we do because yeah. it's not in a piece of paper. Yeah. And so at the end of the day, people look at it. And we said eventually those people will be dead and people yeah. will look at what we do and go, this is amazing. But that only helps the next group. <laughs> you know, it's kind of shitty to be the people that yeah. are like, this is new. Yeah, we need to do this. Um, and I, I feel like, I, you know, people like – and I don't know what's happening with Matt. Uh, but these kinds of things that, like, you and I deem important, yeah, um, popularly important, maybe not canon important. <laughs> yeah. Um, it's hard. That is a hard to, to convince yeah. people. Any other writers – I don't well, know how you what kind of conversations well, you have. The with. changes happen, I think, relatively quickly. I would say because when I when I was in college, um, you know, they would tell you never submit to anything online because that's right. that's just a joke and you're going to be looked down on. And then by the, even by the time I was in grad school, that had mostly gone away. And now it seems, I mean, for me, I'd rather go. I'd rather publish stuff online because people are going to read it. Right. And when you publish stuff in a print journal, you know, no one is ever going to read right. it ever unless. You know, it's one of the top five. And even then, often not. Right. You know, so, like, I had a story online in American Short Fiction, and, and that was read a lot by my friends. And right. Things like that. It was on Rap Genius. Like, Rap Genius picked it up. <laughs> we annotate it. And I think that's probably the thing that most of my friends have read of right. mine. But if it was in the print journal of American Short Fiction, I don't think they would have read it. Yeah. Uh, Virginia Quarterly Review has this problem. Yeah. Um, we just had uh, the digital editor out. Um, Jane Friedman, yeah. who came from Cincinnati, so I've known her for a while. Uh, but she was talking about the ways in which things play online and how they're different. But even, like, culturally, the pop culture stuff, like going to Comic-Con, um, I have to – do you know what South by Southwest is? Oh, yeah, yeah. So I've been on the advisory board for 15 years. Every year I have to convince the tenure boards that, like, this is a big fucking deal. Like, this is yeah. not – there's 30,000 people there. It's the – it's not, but it's not the traditional places. It's not scholarly. Yeah, um, and I find that very because as a writer, it's like I fucking I don't care about your scholarly yeah. stuff. That's not what we do, right? Yeah, I read Tom. You know, I met I met Jim Carroll. I met Hunter yeah. Thompson. They weren't like I, I'm a new thing in the Journal of Fucking Whatever. You know, yeah. <laughs> like, that wasn't a thing. So how do you rectify that for you? Like, do you do you have a problem? Not a, like. Going back and forth between the two, or do you really just focus on the writing stuff? And I, I try to focus on the writing, role. and I, I do have like a real working class kind of stance against things that are so jargon heavy, yeah. theory heavy. Um, I think it's fine for for the scholars yeah. in the department who want to do that kind of stuff, but it's, def it's definitely not for me. Like I, I just wrote, and I, I usually don't write too many essays, but I just published one about the, the racial rhetoric in video games, and I used the term, the the phrase, the um. The misogynist and heteronormative rhetoric of Mario Brothers, and I just had to walk away from the computer. I'm like, well, I failed at life. I, I think I was thinking, like, would my dad? What would my dad think if he right. read this? And I, I don't know. He'd be embarrassed that I wrote that line. But you know, so I'm willing to do a little bit, but right. I always have this guilt associated yeah, yeah. with doing it that I shouldn't be. But I know they want me to do it. Right. You know. So it's no, I go through the same thing, and I tell my students, um, my writing is. So I was just having a discussion the other day. I'm like a C plus writer. Like when I look back at the stuff that I've done, like I'm good. I'm better than a normal human being, but like I'm not in the pantheon. But I, I do what I do. But I know my voice, yeah. and my voice is a very much sort of a fuck you first person. Like mm -hmm. even though I don't drink anymore, it's sort of that's when I write my best. Yeah. And I write my worst when I write. Yeah. 
if you look at the cultural narratives, of yes. the, I'm like, this sounds like yes. bullshit. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like, I don't buy this. So. Yeah. And I know that, like, I do, but I don't want to be intentionally dumb. Yeah. And so there is this sort of, because I fight the, I'm an Appalachian, and I always tell folks, like, I want Appalachian kids and people that I talk to to know, like, you can be this, and that's yeah. fine. You you can also be this. Yeah. Um, it's just not me, naturally. Yeah. And yet I am smart, but not like that. And it's a hard, it's the worst thing about academia, yeah. I think. Well, no, I feel the same guy. way. And I don't want to co-op that, that language that, you know, that people in my hometown would use all the time because I, I get really aggravated when I see another academic who's like, I'm just, you know, a working class guy. I'm like, you have two advanced degrees. Right. You know, you're not. You, right. You know, you are not. You might have. You came from there. Yeah, you came yeah. from there, but you're no longer that. No, absolutely. And uh, so it's really weird to kind of just never feel at home in either no, of no. those places, basically. No, I totally yeah. get it. Um, and it's, I, I, uh, I find when I sent my, my book proposal off to my old editor from Wired. He's the outside uh, executive editor now or articles editor or something. And he said, the first thing he called me and he was like, are you trying to write an academic book? And I was like, oh, you know, like. (laughs) (laughs) The worst insult. Yeah, because it's not. It is very clearly not an academic book. But he was like, this is, you have to stop this thing that you're doing. And going back between those two worlds has really fucked with my voice in like serious, serious ways. Um. And then when I try to go the other way, I have that, like, oh, yeah. shit, now I'm fucking miming yeah. my people yeah. for a story. Yeah. <sighs> I, I, would, I mean, luckily, I'm sure it's similar at Ball State, too, where UND is very working class. You know, it's mostly first-generation college students. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, the mission is, you know, that's built into the right. mission. So it, it kind of, you're able to stay close yeah. and kind of work with those types of students, which is really nice. Yeah, the students are. It's really more the, and not that anybody ever tells me any differently, but, yeah. like, um, I do work that gets me in front of vice presidents there or whatever, and, like, you're just, I'm not going to go in there and I'm going to do the thing that you do, which is put yeah. on a tie and, which I'm fine doing, but it, I, you know, I told my wife the other day, I, if I could quit and just go live in a trailer at the lake and write, I would, I think I would probably be a B minus instead of a C plus. Yeah. Like it's that kind of um, struggle that I'm always going back and forth with. I have two voices yeah. in my head, but don't feel at home. At no point do yeah. I get home and I'm like, oh, academia, finally at my office. You know, oh, like, oh, no, I've no. been waiting to get here all week. Yeah. yeah. Um, so what do you do about it? Like, how do you? I don't know. I'm still wrestling with it. I still wrestle with it every day, and I, I'm still not sure. Um, you know, I feel better because I work with working class students, so mm-hmm. I feel you know that I'm, I'm helping them forward the same way that people helped me and yep. kind of you know kind of guided me through that process of going from you know a really working class town into the college I went to was was really rich, and I, and I don't know. I had mine too. I don't know what I was thinking because I just took on all these loans and I got scholarships, but not not enough to cover right. it. So when I got there, it was just such a culture shock to, yeah. to see people, you know, like the, I had a, a buddy and his roommate had a Hummer. I yeah, yeah. Like, I went to Miami happening? University, like, and people are, like, driving $100,000 cars and shit. And I'm like, uh, my car costs $1,500, and I have to park it over there, and I don't really have money for gas. Yeah. So it'll just sit there until Dad gives me 20 bucks yeah. to drive home. Yeah. Like, it's here in theory. <laughs> Yeah, I could show you the car. Yeah. <laughs> Except for I'm kind of embarrassed about it because yeah. it, um, I had uh, a Chevy Capri Classic, and you could get eight people in it. 
and it got like eight miles a gallon. Yeah. I mean, it was like an American car from the yeah. you know like early eighties. I had an '89 Mustang that had about a million miles on yeah. it, and it was what it color? Was white. Uh, and it, it was like when you had like Mustang, an Elvis car. Yeah, they tried to make like an economy Mustang <laughs> for like two years, and the, nobody remembers this. <laughs> but that's what you got. Year. That's what I had, and it was already you know ten years too old, right? And um, you know the doors often would freeze shut, so you'd have to crawl in through the hatchback trunk. So I was on a date once, and I distinctly remember being like, "Honey, you wait here. I'm just going to crawl." Into the <laughs> I'll be right back. These people are rich people. Right. I look like a, you know, a turd. Right, right. right. You look like all those movies that you yeah. watched from the 80s. Like, oh, shit, John Waters is right. <laughs> like, this is the, I thought that was the character, and here yeah. I am in the back of my car, like, fuck, won't you yeah. open? Yeah. And you spent all your money on the one date. Yep. <laughs> yep. Uh, so, okay, so you hear, you get on the tenure track, yep. um, and you have the one book? You Just the one book? Yeah. Yep. Not just. You have... The one book. Not just one book. Uh, and where are you with, are you writing a new one? Yeah, I'm working on, on two other books right now. So a short story collection and mm-hmm. a novel. And they're they're both almost done. They're yeah. very, very close to the end. So Says you or says the editor? Uh, <laughs> we're, we're in a midway place, I would say. So I think, I think the editors are, are close. Yeah. Yeah. Who's, can you say, who's it going to be with? I shouldn't say. Okay, don't say I that. I shouldn't say. Uh, still... My, my Nothing. agents and agents, uh, and you know oh, all that kind of, yeah. uh, all these, all these parties get involved. And tells everything's signed, and you get your first check. Really, just best to not. Yeah. The only thing you can do is fuck it up. Yeah. yeah. Exactly. <laughs> Any, anything I say is just bad. Yeah. Uh, how do you feel about it? Do you feel better? Do you feel like? Did you like this time through? Do you sort of? Are you finding your voice? Are you finding your stuff? Is I, it I still a think struggle? Hundred times better. Yeah. The voice, but it's really interesting because. Um, I wrote the first book, and then I thought, like, I'm God. I know how to do this. Right. Nothing will ever be hard again. Right. And this was harder to write. Right. Where I, I, again, wrote another awful third-person novel that was 500 pages, just like my Scranton novel, and I had to throw that away again. And I just came to the exact same realization that Kathy Day gave me years ago, like, stop writing 600-page, thousand-year right. stories. Epic. About, yeah, don't do that. So, I so you're not a Game of Thrones writer? No. No, I'm not. Right. No, no. I, you know, like, I often say that people, when they ask, like, who would you want to write? Like, I would want to write, like, across, and obviously these writers are all better than me, but right. I'm talking perfect worlds. Like, George Saunders and Philip Roth and mm-hmm. Laurie Moore. If I could emulate the three of them yeah. and assimilate their styles, that's what, about, that's what I want to do. Yeah. Um, Mine tends to be more like Thompson and Hemingway. Yeah. But if I could write like anybody, it'd be Fitzgerald. Oh, yeah. I fucking love Fitzgerald. And I know that people always, you know, like, oh, he's really not, like, literature. He was for, yeah, oh, it was a younger like audience. Literature. And I'm like, whatever. Yeah. The, Tales from the Jazz, I, I just, I have very few hardback, I have very few physical books, but I have his, like, in hardback. Yeah. Because I just, and it's, I, you know, I tell, it's I trace, essentially, I write about the underbelly of America. So, like, I love Nathaniel Hawthorne. Like, I feel like I'm one of, like, eight people that are like, no, I read all his shit. Like, I love it. Um, Fitzgerald was like that. I feel like David Foster Wallace was like that. Hunter Thompson was like that. Um, Tom Robbins. Like, all those people that sort of take on what happens when shit goes wrong and we don't talk about it. Like, those kinds of voices. I mean, Hemingway is like that a little bit, although his is a little bit more like defiantly fuck you yeah <laughs> you know it's, there's no like i feel bad and i'm gonna hide about this it's, i'm gonna no, drink no. and you know smack yeah. you around a little bit yeah things are things are terrible yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um 
De Lillo, De Lillo's kind of like that too, but in a really different kind of who De, Don DeLillo with, uh-huh. with white noise and all that uh-huh. sort of stuff. It's kind of like that, but more postmodern and do you, trickery. So do you Good find trickery. yourself like like I can, if I'm writing, I can't read because I will begin to yeah emulate the voice. Yeah, and suddenly I go away and I'm like, ooh, this would be fun. Well, what I found <laughs> out is um, I can't read a book where I think the prose isn't super strong. If I'm writing, or I'll I'll start to emulate the bad habits. Yeah. So I try and write every day. So I still have to read stuff as well. So I try and read something that I think is a really good mm-hmm. that that is a voice that's at least close to what I'm. Interesting. Writing. So I'll read like um like I think the the voice I like the most is like Michael Chabon's. So I'll mm-hmm. read something like um Wonder Boys or something like one of his earlier novels. Yeah. And I like the later stuff too, but I think that's the voice that that I try and do. Interesting. Have you read um you know Angela Jackson Brown? No. So she teaches at Ball State. She was at the the second jam, and she wrote a book called Drinking from a Bitter Cup. And she reminded the the prose. Have you read uh, Stasiland? This is very much like Saturday Night Live with the old um, Chris Farley. Like, remember when that book came out? (laughs) So Stasiland is this book by this Australian woman who goes to um, Berlin after the walls, many years after the walls come down, and, and, and begins to interview people who live behind the wall trying to understand what are the effects must it be like to live in a closed society where everybody is forced to monitor everybody so she talks to regular people she talks to guards she talks to the head of the news agency like all of these people and it's just it's the kind of book that i normally hate because there's no there's no context to it she doesn't say like the berlin wall went up and like you just have to know i mean it's the berlin wall so you yeah, like, yeah. But there isn't any geopolitical stuff. It's just these stories, and you just have to kind of know this context. And the whole time I'd be reading, like, fuck this. I just want to know the context. But then I'd be 40 pages deeper into the book. Yeah. Like, yeah. oh, wait, no, I'm, clearly I don't hate this because – but now I want to know. And then I'd be 40 more pages. And Angela's was that same way. Like, the prose just – it was like being on ocean. Yeah. Like, you just sort of – just go on through, and you don't even realize the depth of it. You know, yeah, that kind of stuff. I'm amazed by that because yeah. I cannot do that. Like mine is very choppy. Yeah. Are you? Where are you at? I, I try and do that. That your prose. Kind of, yeah, I want to be a big voice type yeah. writer. You know, because that's what I coast on the bit. Like, because the novel. I mean, just like every other nerd. Like the novel I really loved as a high schooler was was Catcher in the Rye. Huh. So I always think back to that voice. Yeah. Um, I hate that book. Well, that's what I was going to tell by your reaction. <laughs> yeah. about, you know, huh? But most people hate it. You know, yeah. I think it, I, you know, I love I the first half. set of people that really yeah. gravitate towards it. And then if you catch it, you know, post-16, it's over. You know? I actually think I need to go back and reread it because I think the reason that I hated it is the reason that it might be great. The mm-hmm. second half of the book seems redundant to me. Yeah. It's a whole lot of, and I think at the time I didn't realize it was that the world was making this kid crazy because yeah. of all the things, and I'm yeah. just like, could you fucking move the story along? Well, he JD? doesn't do anything, you know. I mean, that's but that's sort of the yeah. point. Yeah, he doesn't make a choice; he just kind of wanders. But I think, you know, I think when I read that at 15 or 16, I was like, I was yeah. in that mode, and I'm like, this is like, why I, I just remember just enjoying going from the Scarlet Letter to that, where finally kind of like, oh, here's a book that's at least trying to to oh, see, you know encapsulate my yeah experience. your life yeah. Which it's, is like, shit, because I always tell students not to do that now. So right. it's interesting. So I'm like, it doesn't, it doesn't matter if the character's likable or it's related. Right. Like, are you that? It's empathetic. Yeah, right. Cares? So, and I love The Scarlet Letter because... Well, now it, I do. Now I do. Yeah, it was like yeah. the first time that I read a book and was like... I mean, like, you read Chaucer and, you, you know, the shit that they make you read, like, the Gawain and the Green Knight, you know. Yeah. 
But I read that book, and I was that was the I, I distinctly remember the first time thinking like you can write fucked up shit about America. Yeah. Like holy shit! Like this is subversive stuff. And I was like, re- everybody's like, I hate this, and I'm like. You understand that they made the preacher the bad guy? Yeah. You know, and, like, he's hiding in the dark. And so like, his name is Chillingworth. Right. And, like, every time they're in the dark, that's when the truth comes out and the yeah. light where you are. is. And I just thought this is – it was just had one of those profound impacts on me where I just realized, yeah. like, you really can say whatever you want to in a book. Because yeah. I was I was brought up – it was the Reagan years where, like, we were the shining city on the hill, and so, like, yeah. I sort of come of age in this time when, like, anything was not patriotic unless you were, like, fucking had an eagle coming out yeah. of your ass and fucking, <laughs> you know, stars and stripes shooting out of your ears. Just reading this going, holy yeah. fuck, they would kill him. My reaction <laughs> was, was totally ridiculous, and I, I still remember this, where I had just broken up. I had – this girl had just dumped me, and then she loved the book, so I just spent every class just sitting in the back with my, you know, arm hooked over the chair, just making sarcastic Hitting remarks. On it. You know, for no reason other than to be just an utter <laughs> asshole. Yeah. That, I mean, it also kind of lines up with the book. <laughs> so, yeah. you know, like, like I am, sort of – I'm the priest. Yeah, like, shitty relationships <laughs> will make you do awful things. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's uh, it, for me the um, I try to push my I try to read books that last year I I started getting back into reading books that were not about things that I like. Yeah, um, uh, one of the themes that sort of come up here is the empathy of being a writer. Like it's if you're I think if you're good because I judge people like I'm not one of those people that are like everybody should write. I'm like hey, you should everybody should put things down on paper. It, it's beneficial, uh, but that doesn't make it. Yeah. Like there's good writing and there's bad writing. Yeah. And I will be one of the arbiters of that, and I don't really have a problem with that. Um, but there is the writers that have this empathetic ability to put you in. I always tell my students, if you can make Hitler's story so that you understand him, you don't have to excuse him. You don't have to explain it away. But just like we were talking before we went on the air, like if I can understand why Attila the Hun becomes Attila the Hun, yeah. that's a fucking powerful story. Um because nobody, I don't think, I guess maybe sociopaths are more. Most people start off tabula rasa, and then yeah. things happen. And that entices sort of the domino effect of what happens. That's mm-hmm. a storytelling. That's what I find interesting. Like, where does the first domino fall? Mm-hmm. Like like a Breaking Bad. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I'm a recovering addict, so I've never yeah. seen the show. But I hear, like, people, or The Wire. Have you seen The Wire? I have, I'm dying to see The Wire. And How the fuck? I need. To I know it's unbelievable that I missed it. It, it. Like it came out while I was in grad school and had no money, oh. and that's kind of and why. no time. Yeah, so I kind of just completely missed it. Um, although I don't love Breaking Bad either. I, I only made it about a season. In, yeah. Um, so I should probably go back. The Wire is. Um, it's like an opera. It's the best writing I've ever yeah. seen. There are some moments where you're like, ah, they kind of shit the bed on that one, but whatever. A couple hiccups along. A great opera is. And my wife watched it, and I didn't think that she was going to love it. Because it's, you know, it's not a happy story. Like, it yeah. does. it's a story about a drug corner in Baltimore. Like, nobody, there is no happy ending at the end. Other than, like, oh, you didn't die. <laughs> right? Like, yeah, like, your life is awful. <laughs> I think it would have been better if you had died. Um, but it's really, I find myself... Um, really gravitating towards those kinds of stories. Yeah. Like, not like sitcom, not like... No. Have yeah. you seen The Sopranos? 
Uh, you know, I watched it. It came it came out on a weird age for me. So yeah. Italian, but then it started when I was probably like 13 or 12. Yeah. So it was right at that age when my parents basically said, like, you're not watching this. I tried to watch it. Yeah. It, I didn't get the same sense as The Wire. Like, that felt more no. formulaic to me. Yeah, it's definitely not on the same level of what I know of The Wire. Yeah. I mean, because I've seen most of The Sopranos by this point. Oh, really? Yeah. And not, not a bit. I, I like it. I, I, but I always have a soft spot for, for anything with, with mobsters, <laughs> you know, as we were talking about Godfather right. earlier. You know, so I liked it, but I wouldn't put it on, like, an artistic kind of. Yeah. But, but it was good. Yeah, I, I watched the first season, and it was like, because I always look for these, like, again, I thought it was going to be about this sort of underbelly. Like, yeah. The Wire I like because it really is about, like, what happens when the bottom erodes and the top doesn't know it. So the top still doesn't understand why it's toppling over. Yeah. Um, you know, and it, the top thinks that tumbling is a wave crashing across the culture, and really it's smashing down on the yeah. ground. And I thought The Sopranos was going to be like that, and it se- it seemed to me more like just a mob show. Yeah, that, that's basically more like Goodfellas or something yeah. like that, and less like Casino or something kind of making that yeah. know, cultural point. Right. You know? So uh, you got the, the two books, and then I'm all – what I not that I'm not interested in the writing, but I'm really interested in Corgi's Normal. Yeah. So tell me about that. Yeah, sure. So I love you. this. Yeah, Corey Snorkel, it's, a, it's just a real DIY chapbook press I run with my fiance. And, you know, we do it real old school where it's, it's we just do it at Kinko's. Or I think we did the last one at Staples <laughs> uh, where, you know, we just print them out and then we staple them together and mail them out to people. And they're just kind of experimental poetry and nonfiction and fiction, just kind of weird stuff that we like. You know, we did one that was uh, like the Chuck Kinder Prize. So we mm-hmm. named one after an old teacher who has this <laughs> weird sensibility. You know, so we, we did a contest. So it's it's been really fun, really cool to kind of learn. Like, uh, you know, we didn't even do it. I know InDesign, and we did it in Word almost <laughs> on purpose. On purpose. Like, so it doesn't look good. You yeah. Know, I want it to kind of look rugged and kind of like I put it together in 20 minutes. Which, yeah. You know, I love chapbooks that look really professional, but I, that's not what we want to do. Yeah. Well, and it's – so how many people get it? Is it small? Oh, yeah. It's – yeah, it's super small. It is I super DIY. Seller was 200 maybe. Yeah, but that's pretty good yeah, for just like – Wow, I can't believe people are, you know, really want this too. But I, I think there there is a kind of desire for that type of material out there. I, it's part of the reason I do the the geeky press stuff is yeah. um, that sort of middle road writing stuff has disintegrated from a publishing level. Mm-hmm. There are there's not a five book deal anymore where you get the first three to not sell because yeah. you're building your audience. And so I think so much of this stuff is important um, because that's where that happens. Like. You find your voice, you find your yeah. audience, you find if you have an audience and, or if you have a voice. Um, and I think the fact that it's not perfect is what makes those kinds of things really interesting. Yeah. Well, and all my favorite younger writers had that career trajectory of, you know, it's all – well, uh, modern writers, you know, like contemporaries. Right. Like they all kind of publish with indie, small indie presses. Yeah. And then they have a bigger book like Matt Bell and Roxanne Gay and mm-hmm. like Alyssa Nutting and Blake Butler and all these people. Right. Justin she, Taylor. Uh, that bad feminist? Yeah. Bad feminism? Yeah, and she had been in the indie scene yeah. for years and then just blows up. People keep telling me I have to read this book. Oh, it's great. Come. Yeah, every, it's great. everybody's like, have you read it? Even her, sh- her short story collection from a few years ago, yeah. Edie's wonderful. But I just think that's important. And, you know, we – like, I love going to see polished yeah. stuff, and I think that's beautiful. But I also – part of the reason I do the jam is because it's not. People fuck up. Yeah. You know, like shit falls apart, and I just think that's part of the thing. Yeah. Like that is, 
I don't want all my if it's if everything is shiny all the time, people think you can only produce shiny things. Yeah. And I feel like most of the stuff is better when it's not polished. Yeah, when it's messy and human and Yeah. You know. It's hard. Yeah. Um, although I want my shit copy edited, but Yeah. But even that is sort of, you know, so do you guys do it yourself? Like you recruit the writers, you recruit like yeah. how do you how do you make it happen? We just solicit writers we like, so uh, other writers that we read their work, and then you know we see if they want to do a chapbook, mm-hmm. and we just go from there. We do everything; it's just me and Teresa, um, and she does the design stuff. So she'll usually make like um, she'll make like a stamp that she puts on it, or something mm-hmm. like that, or do something. that's like the cover, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like she'll do something with the cover, and I'll I'll do the interior, and we'll edit it together. But usually we don't really edit them too much in terms of the content, right? Because we want kind of the you know, the idea is it's, it's like an EP for a band. It's right. the first EP. Right. That's what we're trying to do. You know, so we don't really want something that's too, you know, that's been too micromanaged by us. Yeah. It's, what's the response been? People like it? Yeah, it's been positive. I haven't heard anything negative. Uh-huh. We, haven't gotten, we haven't gotten reviews from the books, but I kind of like Fuck that. reviews. Yeah. I mean, like, the people that have gotten them. That's what it's I mean. It's all been positive. Yeah. So, you know, people like it. So yeah. we're going to keep doing it. This, this summer we're getting married, mm-hmm. and we only do them in the summer. Like, that's kind of the motto. It's like it's – um. It's like smart vacation reading. Is yeah, yeah, part of it. Um, so we're probably going to take this summer off and then come back to it. Because, uh-huh. um, you know, wedding, planning, all this stuff. Yeah. So, and it, we're hundreds of miles away from where we're getting married. So it's just kind of even. Where are you getting married? Back home, back okay. in Pennsylvania. So it's it's another layer yeah. of difficulty. We got married at the Indy Fringe Theater. Oh, that's that's a great space. <laughs> $300. Great. Oh, <laughs> yeah. Oh. <laughs> I wanted to get married here. I wanted to get married at the Buffalo Trace Distillery. <laughs> it's a beautiful space, and uh, you know. But I guess you know all our family and friends are back yeah. home for the most part. So we're older. So I'm 42. Yeah. I was 40 when we got married, so, and I wasn't planning on it. So yeah. I was like, "Here's where we're doing it. We'd yeah. love you to be here, but here's where we're doing it." Yeah, <laughs> that's the way to do it. Yeah, it was. Um, yeah, it was, and, and we could bring our own caterer, which was like my ex girlfriend, which was great. Wow. So like. It was really, truly a family affair yeah. of, like, small, tiny, because we, we actually planned it on our first date. Wow. We planned our wedding on the first date, and we had that exact wedding 13 months later. Wow, that's unbelievable. It was totally unbelievable. I'm yeah. still a little shocked that that yeah. happened, um, but I know that wedding should get out of hand fast. Yeah, we're trying to keep it small. Like that was, that's yeah. been our goal the whole time. It doesn't matter. It's logistics. Even with yeah. five people, you have to organize five people. Oh, yeah. <laughs> There's never a thing where it's like, oh, this will be a simple decision. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, we were just yesterday where we spent 30 minutes looking at invitations and the, the <laughs> fonts on invitations. And so this moment, I never thought I'd be thinking about, like, well, maybe the font should be like this. But right. I did have – in the moment, I had very strong opinions. Right. Like, the font needs to look like this. Right. You know, but in, in the grand scheme of things, what does it matter with the fonts on the invitation? Right. We went through Etsy. Everything we did was yeah. on Etsy. Our rings, Etsy, we were like, we didn't want to buy anything that somebody didn't make with their hands that yeah. we didn't know. And so that made it very easy because we were like, well, it's cost an extra $3 to get them to change that. And we're paying for it ourselves. So that's great. <laughs> you know, like, Off-white, that's our color for, yeah. <laughs> for the wedding. Um, so you'll do that again next year, maybe. Yeah. Maybe you'll do it this summer. Maybe you, maybe that post-wedding you'll change your mind and do one in the fall. We're talking about it. So we're still kind of like, well, maybe we could fit it in. We actually do have a plan to maybe reprint uh, a chapbook that's fallen out of publication yeah. from another publisher that we really like. So. Is it is each chapbook just one person or is it a – so it's not like a collection of – Oh, that would be interesting, like a mixtape. Yeah, yeah. That would be that – That's would what be, I thought yeah. that they were is to, like, actually go through and say, like, curate – Oh, they've all been one 
person. Interesting. So, you know, just like three essays or mm-hmm. ten poems or four short stories, something like that. But a but a but a mixtape kind of approach would be pretty cool. Yeah, yeah. like an anthology. I'm a big fan of the DIY stuff too. Yeah. Like I just feel like there is. Do you guys do anything live with it? You need to do like Corgi live. Well, we have talked about doing a reading at AWP. Oh. So we're waiting for there to be a critical mass because so far we've only published five. Uh-huh. So maybe if we publish one more, there will yeah. be like three people who go to AWP. We'll get them all because they're all kind of across the country where these yeah, people yeah. live. So I kind of want to uh, wait until we get them all at one place or leave them, you know, two-thirds of them. That'd be great. Yeah. And then you need to videotape it. Yeah, that would I guess, be perfect. I yeah. guess we call it recording it now. I guess we yeah. won't really videotape yeah. it now. Um, that's what I do with the jam. Like, we just set yeah. up a single one frame. And I tell you what, having that afterwards, people get really freaked out at first. Yeah. But then afterwards, they love it, even when it's terrible. Like, they love having that artifact. And and. Far more people have watched the jam online. We get about 50 or 60 people, um, but way more people watch it online, which I just find really fascinating. That well, uh, you know, they could be out of Indianapolis. You know, they can be out of the state. You know, yeah, yeah. And they get to see I just think it's interesting that we curate a thing for a live event that people yeah. also are finding some kind of entertainment in 10 minutes somebody telling a story. is a That's an investment. That's yeah. not a two-minute thing. That has shocked me that I think, but again, I think it's that DIY thing. I think because it's authentic and it's not produced and it's not real. And like sometimes people turn their back to the cameras because they're in the round versus what we do. So for like two minutes, you're just seeing their back as they tell the story. But people seem to watch them. Well, that's even, I mean, what we're doing now with podcasts, you know, right. like I love Bill Simmons, which is obviously heavily produced, yeah. but in the beginning, it's just, you know, two guys having a conversation, right, right. two, like, you know, interesting conversation with like Leonard Dunham or something like mm-hmm. that, just kind of, you know, shoot the shit. Yeah. That's great. Yeah. But I think that it's that sort of cultural, and then we'll, we'll wrap it up, but I think it's that cultural shift that we've hit where, and we were talking a little bit about this before we fired this up, is that, that, um, that millennial generation, you're sort of on the cusp of that has this idea that things have to be perfect. Yeah. Uh, because we've done that to them. We've broken the millennials. Yeah. Um, but that you get to a point where you just sort of like, you can't do that and exist. Everything can't be perfect yeah. before you can do, so, or you get Gattaca. You know, like, <laughs> you just like, everything wrong gets weeded out. And that sort of defeat. you. I don't know how you could write in that environment. Oh, yeah, because 80, what, 95% of what writers do is terrible. Yeah. <laughs> you just, you know, my trim. My teaching site has Hemingway's quote: "The first draft of anything is shit." Yeah, like this is going to be terrible. Um, and there's, I think, a joy in this kind of stuff. Uh, so, last thing, you got anything? Uh, uh, do you have any clue when the books might be coming out? Don't uh, know. Like I, fall, I would winter, like twenty sixteen. So next year, yeah. so we need to hang on. So they yeah. need to go buy the current book now. Yeah. So and it's called Last Call in the City of Bridges. And you can, you can get that on your site. Yeah, it's your on site. Amazon, yeah. and it's on the publisher's website, and sure. it's like on my site. SalPain.com, yeah? Salvatore-Pain. Oh, that's Some right. jerk bought SalvatorePain.com. Really? He keeps trying to sell it to me now. So there's nothing even on it. So I'm refusing. I'm going to keep that dash forever. <laughs> there's also another Salvatore Payne who does all these insurance frauds and um, just tried to do, like, Ebola cleanup in nice. New York. And uh, so I had finally beaten him in the Google search. Yeah. And now he's back because he just did this like, of Ebola fraud. So I hate that guy. Um, the most famous Brad King um, is a male porn star. That's 
Of all the many brands, it took me a long time to bang him off the front page, so to say. Because, like, people would search my name and they were like, uh, somebody's hijacked your site. I'm like, I'm actually the Brad King, not Brad King. <laughs> like, there's a, you'll have to, don't, don't, don't search yeah. at work. Don't search. <laughs> yeah. Like, it's not going to end well for anybody. <laughs> well, hey, thanks for sitting down and chatting with me today. Yeah, thanks for having me. This has been great. Great. Have a good day. conversation with Sal. We could have done that all day. It took us 30 minutes to get started because we were just bullshitting about the life and the world, houses and basketball and all the kinds of things that um, people with similar backgrounds do. So that was great. Um, You should definitely pay attention to what he does. He's over at the University of Indianapolis and they're holding readings and they're doing all kinds of cool stuff all the time. Corgi's Normal Press, you can find if you Google Vouch Books. which his fiance is part of, and we will have Teresa on at some point. And she helps us with the Downtown Riders Jam. Um, she helps spread the word, helps us build a crowd. Um, so that house, there's lots of things going on. Don't forget, the Jam Volume 3 is coming up on Wednesday, February 25th from 7 to 8.15. We have six riders. If you go to the geekypress.com backslash events, you will find out all the riders that we have there. At 8.30 that night, we're having a fundraiser at Indie Fringe. Tickets are $15. That includes two free beers. We will have um, a variety of local breweries that are there. We will have authors doing readings. We will be having a silent auction with restaurants and um, books and classes at the Indiana Writers Center and all kinds of things that you can bid on. All those proceeds go to Indie Reads. To help in their fight against adult literacy or illiteracy. They want literacy. They're not trying to make people less literate. That is not why we're raising money. So sign up for our newsletter at thegeekypress.com and keep up to date with what's going on. Make sure you pay attention to the events happening around Indianapolis. Let us know what you guys are doing so we can share that out with everybody, whether you're here or elsewhere. Our newsletter reaches people all over the country. And look for us coming to Chicago this summer to do a jam there. Until the next time, we will see you around the internet. Hey there, it's Rachel Ballinger, and I am extremely excited to invite you to Rachel Uncensored. It's my podcast where I sit down and get real with my friends and celebrity guests where we talk about all sorts of topics, and sometimes we might be under the influence when we do so. We cover things from personal stories to hot-button issues. And it's the only place on the internet you can find an uncensored version of me. It's a side of me that you might not have seen before because it's not the most family or brand friendly. But don't worry, I'm still sort of slightly a decent human being. If you're intrigued, then make sure you check it out. New episodes drop every Wednesday. You can find it on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Trust me, you won't want to miss out on the fun and candid conversations we have here on Rachel Uncensored.